This week on Destination Journey, join me on an adventure through the Pacific Northwest. The destination, a work event in Portland, Oregon. The journey, exploring a beautiful city, then a train trip through the mountains. Work trip hacks are so much fun, and I think you'll enjoy this one. Pack your bags. It's time for an adventure. Hi, I'm Patrika Elise, and I'm all about creative, responsible travel. Join me weekly for stories and tips that'll inspire you to create your own adventure. In travel and in life, it's not always about where we're going. It's how we get there that matters most. This is Destination Journey, the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Destination Journey. I am thrilled to have you along for the ride today as we head to the beautiful Pacific Northwest. First, a little bit of background for today's episode. As a marketing entrepreneur that specializes in events and experience, I spend a lot of time traveling for work. This is actually what kickstarted my interest in solo travel. I grew up traveling with my family when my dad traveled for work, and most of his trips were a drivable distance, so we just went along for the ride. I loved piling into a hotel room with my family, though I will say you definitely learn which of your siblings are the wildest sleepers on trips like these. I had many a foot to the stomach, but I digress. <laughs> but basically, during these trips, my dad would work through the day and my mom would take us to do local activities. Then in the afternoons and evenings, we'd go to local restaurants and events. Of course, this was the 90s and things were a lot different in terms of the economy, so this isn't as doable as it used to be, but there are still so many ways to make it happen. I grew up seeing work trips as a fun way to travel, but it wasn't until I got out on my own that I realized this wasn't the norm. So... Full disclosure, not every career path gives you the opportunity to travel for work, but there are conferences, and no, I'm not shamelessly plugging my own industry, but there are conferences, workshops, and trainings for pretty much every industry. So if you're working in a startup or a corporate setting, you may be able to use these opportunities to travel for work. My first work trip was to Detroit, Michigan for an event. I didn't know much about travel hacking back then, but it was enough to get me excited about taking more work trips. After all, I was only two years out of college, so I was nowhere near being able to afford a true vacation. So traveling for work was the best way for me to be able to explore new places without spending a lot of money. Of course, with work trips, a lot of your time is preoccupied by commitments to, well, work, but that's okay. I'll show you a few ways to make the most of a work trip by turning it into an adventure. For this trip, I needed to attend a conference for work that would last three days. This was my first time going to Portland, Oregon, so naturally, I was pretty excited. At that point, I'd only visited California, so I figured it was time for me to see more of the West Coast of the United States. Since I was new to the West Coast, I decided to stick to major cities and visit Seattle on my way to Portland. With the work trip, there's less flexibility, so my trips have to be a little more controlled. Also, in order to be able to use the budget that had been allocated by my job for my trip to Portland, I needed a place with a comparable cost of travel from New York. This adventure started with a multi-city ticket from New York to Seattle, then from Portland back to New York. 
Multi-city tickets are my favorite way to add flexibility to your air travel because you can use a more sustainable method of travel between individual locations without having to double back to return home. It also saves time. In the previous episode of this show, I described another example of a multi-city flight. So if you haven't yet, give it a listen. I personally use Google Flights to plan these trips by using their multi-city booking tool. If your airline of choice doesn't have this option available, you can always book separate one-way tickets. But I do recommend being extra meticulous with bookings like these as it's really easy to book the wrong airport or date by mistake when dealing with multiple tickets. The flight from New York to Seattle is about five and a half hours, which is a pretty decently long trip. I always prepare with downloaded episodes of my favorite shows, plus some good reads. Long flights are also a great time to get a little writing done. On this flight, the airline provided a wrap for lunch, so when I hopped off the plane, I was ready to explore. According to Wikipedia, the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, also known as SeaTac, was built in 1944 after the U.S. military took over the previous airfield during World War II. Construction was finished in 1947, and now the airport receives flights from 31 airlines, which reach 91 domestic and 28 international destinations. Seattle is also a great layover city since the airport is about a 20-minute drive from plenty of popular attractions. If you have at least four hours between flights, you can easily leave the airport for a bite and some delicious Seattle coffee with time to spare. Aside from my flight, the Seattle part of my adventure was self-funded. Before booking the trip, I discussed my plans with my manager to let her know that I'd be flying into Seattle first and then traveling to Portland on my own in time for my event responsibilities. When planning a trip like this, if you're using company budget to fund your travels, make sure that you communicate with whoever's in charge of approving your reimbursements. The last thing that you want is to plan a trip and find out that it goes against your company policy and you won't get reimbursed or you're in trouble, etc. So while I've been fortunate to have some great managers in the past, all companies are different. So when looking to do something like this, I recommend being flexible in your approach to getting these types of trips approved. As is the case with most of the U.S., the Pacific Northwest was home to Native Americans for over 4,000 years before the first European settlers arrived. At the time, the Duwamish tribe lived in what would eventually become known as Seattle, and it's still very present in the area, despite many broken promises regarding protections for the tribe from the U.S. government. Here's an excerpt from duwamishtribe.org to detail this rich history. And I quote, The Duwamish people have been in the Seattle, Greater King County area since time immemorial. Our stories, such as Northwind, Southwind, tell of the last ice age and an ice weir breaking over the Duwamish River. We were the first signatories on the Treaty of Point Elliot in 1855, signed by Chief Sial, who was chief of the Duwamish and Suquamish tribes. Our longhouse today stands across the street from where one of our largest villages was located before it was burned down by settlers in 1895. End quote. According to the website, the Duwamish tribe is not federally recognized, but still boasts over 600 active members today. If you'd like to learn more about this incredible tribe, duwamishtribe.org is the best place to get up-to-date information. If you're visiting Seattle soon, I hope you'll give the Duwamish tribe's latest exhibit a visit. It's titled Spirit Returns 2.0, A Duwamish and Settler Story. 
and it examines a combination of historical artifacts and accounts to tell the story of how Seattle became the city we know today. I know it's on my list for the next time I visit. Since this was a work trip on the way to a conference, I only had two days, well, more like 36 hours in Seattle, so that meant I had to hit the ground running. However, I was not prepared for the sheer amount of hills in the city, so my running was a lot slower than I had anticipated. My first stop was the original Starbucks. Back then, I would have called myself a super fan of the brand, especially their customer-focused marketing. Unfortunately, after seeing this blatant union busting that's happening at the time of this recording, I can no longer support the company this way and the original store would not be a priority for me anymore. That's not to say that I'm perfect about never going, but I do prioritize local coffee shops. As I mentioned before, this trip was pre-pandemic, so times and available information was different. I always support changing your opinion upon learning new, truthful information. Growth is great, y'all. That being said, the Pike Place Market is one of the most famous sites in Seattle. The fish market is just one side of this exciting place. There's a great little coffee shop that's on the top floor of the market called Storyville, which is great for people watching while you enjoy some coffee, made-to-order breakfast, and pastries. I loved the atmosphere of this coffee shop, and the views were wonderful. While Seattle has a lot of hills, there are sections of the city that are pretty walkable. To get to my next stop, I walked along the waterfront and then through Belltown. According to Wikipedia, Belltown is named for William Nathaniel Bell, who had claim to the land at the time of the neighborhood's development. Belltown is one of the trendiest, aka gentrified, areas in Seattle, and now it's home to a ton of great local shops. If you're just starting out with solo travel, I definitely recommend this neighborhood for exploration until you get a little more comfortable navigating alone. Next up, I wanted to dive into a little piece of Seattle history, the 1962 World's Fair. That's right, after this break, we're going to talk about the Space Needle. Welcome back! Before we talk about the Space Needle, I'd like to give you a little context on the event that inspired this iconic structure, the World's Fair. According to Wikipedia, the World's Fair is a concept that dates back to Prague in 1791. We're going to stay specific to Seattle for today's episode, but I'd encourage you to read more about the previous World's Fairs across the globe. Basically, these events are an international gathering to showcase innovation, and they usually last anywhere from three to six months at a time. According to Spaceneedle.org, the official website for this attraction, the iconic structure was first conceptualized by Edward E. Carlson, a hotel executive who was also on the planning team for the 1962 World's Fair, which would take place in Seattle. He drew a thin, tall structure with a disc-like shape at the top. He actually called it a Space Needle. Of course, with its unconventional structure, it was challenging to bring it to something that could actually be built. After a number of redesigns, architect John Jack Graham Jr. put together a team and came up with the flying saucer top of the tower. Architect Victor Steinbruck created the tower's shape based on an abstract sculpture of a dancer called the Feminine One. If you're like me, you've probably seen pictures and wondered, how does that thing not blow over in a storm? 
The construction of this tower is really interesting. The foundation alone weighs as much as the tower, and when construction started in 1961, the first step was, of course, to pour this foundation. It took one whole day and 467 cement trucks to continuously fill the 30-foot deep by 120-foot wide hole. The robust foundation brings the 607-foot tower's center of gravity to just five feet above the ground. Basically, that tower isn't going anywhere anytime soon, and 60 years later, it's still an iconic part of Seattle's skyline. Although in 1989, the almost live comedy show on King TV ran a spoof show showing that the Seattle Space Needle had fallen, and it was so convincing that people jammed the 911 emergency system with panicked calls. There is a ton of great free content and videos as you walk around the park where the Space Needle is located. Inside the gift shop, I enjoyed learning from the videos showing the construction process. It was truly amazing to see. The cost to go to the top of the Space Needle was pretty steep. Ha! So I decided to skip this one. If you've been to the top of the Space Needle, please send your pictures to Destination Journey Show to be featured on our Instagram. After exploring, it was time to head in for the evening. I did also get to pass by the iconic giant pink elephant supercar wash sign, and it was definitely captivating to see. Unfortunately, the original sign, which had been there since 1956, was removed in 2020 as the second franchise location on Battery Street closed. This sign is being preserved and repaired, and it'll be back on display pretty soon at the Museum of History and Industry in South Lake Union. I decided to walk back through Belltown to my hotel. I was staying at the Seattle Marriott Waterfront, normally very expensive, but my cousin hooked me up with a discount, y'all. But since this was just one night and I wasn't there for long, the hotel was lovely, but I didn't spend a lot of time there. I did enjoy watching the sunrise from my room's balcony. So getting up early in a city is a must if you want to get great pictures. After I watched the sunrise on day two in Seattle, I packed my tripod and walked to some of the locations that I had seen the day before. I was able to get the photos that I wanted, and it's always nice to take in the city while it's quiet and peaceful. After a wonderful morning, I checked out of my hotel and headed to Seattle's Amtrak station for the next part of my adventure. According to the Amtrak website, the Amtrak Cascades train line travels from Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada through Washington State and ends in Eugene, Oregon. According to Wikipedia, the railway dates back to 1925, when it was operated by a partnership between Northern Pacific, Great Northern, and Union Pacific train companies. In those days, it only operated between Seattle and Portland. When Amtrak was established in 1971, it took over the line and has operated it ever since. Now, the Cascades line travels through the Cascade and Olympic mountain ranges, which are home to Mount St. Helens and Mount Olympus, respectively. This train ride is my favorite one yet. The scenery was absolutely stunning, and being on a train allows you to truly soak it all in. It's also very convenient to be able to get food from the cafe car and enjoy a meal with the view. Plus, when you book a few weeks in advance, Amtrak tickets are pretty affordable. Aside from the amazing views, I love train travel because it's significantly more sustainable than flying or even driving. 
Based on a report from ourworldindata.org, train travel is the most environmentally efficient way to solo travel, only beaten by biking and walking. I also feel safer traveling longer distances by train versus driving when alone because you just never know what can happen on the road. And at least a train is staffed with the crew that has undergone emergency training. Of course, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take precautions when traveling via train. Always keep important items like your phone, wallet, and keys on your person, and make sure that small items are visible to you at all times. It is so easy for someone to grab your bag from under seat storage, so be mindful. It's time for a quick break, and then we're getting off the train in Portland, Oregon. The city of Portland, Oregon is actually named after Portland, Maine. According to Wikipedia, the land now known as Portland, Oregon, was originally inhabited by two bands of the indigenous Chinook people, the Multnomah and the Clackamas. The Oregon Trail, the actual trail, not the game for all my millennials out there, led to significant population growth in the 1840s. Today, the city's motto is Keep Portland Weird, and I loved seeing just how unapologetically weird this city can be. Once I arrived in Portland, I had to get to work on the event. Naturally, I wanted to see as much of Portland as possible while I was there, so I made a point to walk wherever I could. Of course, it wasn't always possible to walk if I was transporting event supplies, for example. So I decided to wake up early to walk from my hotel to the conference, and that was a great way to experience a bit more of the city while still fulfilling my work requirements. Also, food is an amazing way to experience a city, and Portland has no shortage of amazing local places. While I was there, I got to try Brick's Tavern in the Pearl District, and I have to say, this place has an amazing selection of drinks. Whether you prefer creative cocktails, local craft beer, or local wines, their menu is extensive and sure to have something that you'll like. Overall, the conference kept me pretty busy, but I loved getting to work with local venues for special events. As a part of this brand's presence at the show, I also got to host an event at Punchbowl Social, which doubled as an opportunity for me to experience this super fun venue. There are multiple locations, but Portland has the largest one. Aside from the great bar-style food and drink, they also have a ton of great games ranging from bowling to shuffleboard to the arcade and billiards. Personally, I am very competitive, so I love an adult arcade. Plus, I always enjoy an opportunity to host a fun event while experiencing something new. Architecture is one of my favorite things to look out for when traveling. You can learn so much about the history of a location just based on the types of architecture present. My favorite building that I saw in Portland was the Hollywood Theater, and it has an incredible history. Here's a small excerpt from HollywoodTheater.org. And I quote, the Hollywood Theater opened its doors on Saturday, July 17, 1926, with the showing of the silent film More Pay, Less Work. A 1,500-seat silent movie palace complete with an eight-piece orchestra and organist, the Hollywood Theater was the last venue in Portland built as both a vaudeville house and a movie theater. Designed by Benes and Herzog, architects of Portland, a local advertisement called it a palace of luxury, comfort, and entertainment, unsurpassed by any theater on the coast. 
It proved such a popular destination that Portland's Hollywood district ultimately took its name from the theater. End quote. I was captivated by the Rococo-style architecture of the theater. According to Wikipedia, the Rococo period is also known as the Late Baroque period, which began in France in the 1730s and remained popular until the 1780s. This style instantly wows with its dramatic designs. Some ways to identify this architectural style include looking for curves, countercurves, and other grand elements. And you'll usually see common Rococo design features like asymmetrical shells, acanthus and other leaves, birds, bouquets of flowers, fruits, angels, and more. Basically, this style has all the theatrics, so it's perfect for a theater. You'll also see this type of architecture in historic buildings and churches, especially in Italy, Germany, and Great Britain, as it gained popularity in those locations and influenced the design of many iconic locations. The Hollywood Theater also went through several expansions and upgrades to keep up with the changing landscape of the cinema, including the transition to 70mm projection in 1959, all the way to the projection booths that still exist today, which were built in 1975. During the 1980s, the theater was unfortunately in pretty bad shape, but in 1997, a nonprofit called Film Action Oregon purchased the theater and worked to restore it to its former glory. Now, the theater is a beautiful part of the community and it acts as a modern historic movie house. I didn't get to catch a movie while I was there, but honestly, getting to see this beautiful architecture was an amazing treat. This is one of my favorite ways to explore a city on a limited budget. You'd be surprised at the incredible history you can discover just by taking a walk. I have to say, both Seattle and Portland are very socially progressive, especially when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. I didn't have any issues walking around, but in both cities, there are pretty large areas with unhoused people, which may feel uncomfortable to witness if you're not used to spending time in major cities. I didn't experience any situations where I was personally in danger, but I do recommend that when you're walking at night, you stay aware of your surroundings and walk in well-lit areas. Portland is also leading the way in alternative medicine like psychedelic therapy, so I'm definitely going to keep watching what Portland does next. After a whirlwind of a work trip, it was time to head home. I've been back to the Pacific Northwest a few times since then, but my first trip there was so memorable. I can't wait to get back to these two cities and ride the train at a different time of year for a different view. Maybe springtime. Okay, so that trip was a great balance of work and play. I love trips like this because there are so many opportunities to experience new places when traveling for work. If you're considering a job that has a reasonable travel requirement, I hope you'll consider some creative travel additions to your next business trip. Here are a few things to remember from today's episode. Number one, you don't know if you don't ask. Work travel may be available to you and you may also be able to hack your trips to be even more exciting. Number two, if you're visiting a new region and you aren't sure what to expect, cities are typically going to be more tolerant of outsiders and as a result, safer for solo traveling. And finally, even if you don't have a lot of time at a destination, taking a walk is a great way to learn more about the local architecture and experience the lifestyle and the food. 
Before we wrap up today's journey, one more fascinating story that connects these two cities. Back in 1971, a man known only as D.B. Cooper hijacked a flight on its way from Portland to Seattle. His demands were $200,000, which would be over $1.2 million in today's funds in ransom, and four parachutes for when they landed in Seattle. He released all of the other passengers and then demanded that the plane be flown to Mexico City. Shortly into the trip, he parachuted out of the plane, never to be seen again. There are lots of theories as to what happened to this man who was known as D.B. Cooper and lots of theories around his identity. So if you're looking for a documentary binge, I highly recommend diving into this little portion of Pacific Northwest history. It's time to answer audience questions. If you'd like to ask a question about today's episode, email questions at destinationjourney.co and I'll try my best to answer them all on the podcast. Today's question comes from Jarissa C. about the Grand Canyon trip I shared in the previous episode. The question is, how much should I budget for a trip like this? That's a great question, and thank you for asking. There are a few options for a trip to the Grand Canyon like the one I described. With my version, the main expenses were flights and the hotel stays, since most of the attractions that we visited were free or low cost. Flight prices fluctuate quite a bit, so for budgeting, I always recommend starting by checking to see which dates fit your budget when checking flights. Then move on to the next most expensive part of the trip, the hotels. For a traveling duo, the Grand Canyon road trip adventure could be done for as little as $750, especially if you watch for low-cost flights, book in the off-season, and are open to camping in some of the locations to save costs on hotels. If you're looking to follow the exact same route that I took, I'd recommend closer to $1,000 given the increase in fuel prices and other travel expenses. But don't worry, I'll keep sharing more cost-saving tips for travel in future episodes. Thanks again for your question. Well, I've got more events to plan and more adventures to combine with them, so I'll see you next week. We're heading down south to New Orleans, Louisiana. If you enjoyed traveling with me today, leaving a rating helps me share these stories with more travelers like you. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope that you'll subscribe on your platform of choice. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Destination Journey, a podcast about creative, responsible travel. Destination Journey is written, executive produced, and hosted by Patrika Elise in partnership with Circle and Sphere Productions and with support from Natisha Chopra, Matador, and the Cheston crew. Patrick, Lisa, Devika, Jarissa, Joey, and Matt. If you'd like to ask a question, contact questions at destinationjourney.co. If you'd like to see your destination featured on the show, reach out to locations at destinationjourney.co. Remember to travel safely and always enjoy the adventure along the way. Until next time.